If you are new with us this Sunday, uh, we have been making our way steadily, slowly some might say, through the Gospel according to John. And this morning we are in chapter 10, uh, verses 22 through 42, and I invite you to turn there once again and follow along as I read from God's holy and inspired Word. Then came the Feast of Dedication at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was in the temple area walking in Solomon's colonnade. And the Jews gathered around him, saying, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus answered, I did tell you, but you do not believe. The miracles I do in my Father's name speak for me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Again, the Jews picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus said to them, I have shown you many great miracles from the Father. For which of these do you stone me? We're not stoning you for any of these, replied the Jews, but for blasphemy, because you, a mere man, claim to be God. Jesus answered them, Is it not written in your law, I have said you are God's? If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture cannot be broken, what about the one whom the Father set apart as his very own and sent into the world? Why then do you accuse me of blasphemy because I said I am God's son? Do not believe me unless I do what my Father does. But if I do it, even though you do not believe me, believe the miracles that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. And again they tried to seize him, but he escaped their grasp. And then Jesus went back across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing in the early days. And here he stayed, and many people came to him. And they said, though John never performed a miraculous sign, All that John said about this man was true. And in that place, many believed in Jesus. And herein ends the reading of God's Word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to Him and to Him alone. Amen. For us to have a good grasp of what is transpiring in our text for today. We need just a little bit of history. When King Solomon built the first temple, the Bible says that the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant into the Holy of Holies. And as soon as they departed from the inner sanctum and the great veil safely separated them, 
that a great cloud filled the house of the Lord, and the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. And at that moment, King Solomon blessed the Lord for his faithfulness towards Israel. And he then knelt before the altar. He stretched out his hands toward heaven, and he offered a prayer of dedication. And in that prayer, Solomon acknowledged the amazing nature of Almighty God when he posed this somewhat rhetorical question towards the beginning of his prayer. He asked, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house that I have built. In other words, King Solomon acknowledged the incredible nature of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who deigned to reveal himself to his people to venture with them. And Solomon acknowledged that God had condescended to be present with them in a way that amazed him, that God would allow his name to be associated with this earthly dwelling place. Well, when Solomon finished his prayer, it says that he stood and blessed all the assembly of Israel with a loud voice. And it is presumed that Solomon went to the eastern portico and addressed all those who had gathered for this historic moment and offered his benediction before the people of Israel. Well, then, roughly 800 years later, a Syrian king of the Seleucid Empire named Antiochus IV, frequently referred to as Antiochus Epiphanes, swarmed over the land of Judah, and he breached the city wall of Jerusalem. And it was this ruler's desire to force Greek thought and religion and philosophy upon this tiny Jewish nation. And to accomplish this feat, in 167 B.C., Antiochus overran the temple and stole some of the precious artifacts placed there, and he established a pagan altar to Zeus on the altar for the worship of Yahweh. And he declared that in all the towns of Judea, similar altars were to be established. And he then desecrated the temple further by sacrificing a pig on that altar, and he sought to force the Jewish people to eat of it. And as one might imagine, the revolt was spontaneous and immediate. And when officials from Antiochus arrived in Modane, a small village about 18 miles northwest of Jerusalem, an aged priest named Mattathias killed the first Jew who attempted to comply as well as the official who was in charge. And this began the Maccabean Revolt, which grew from a few rebels into a small army that eventually freed Jerusalem from foreign control. The temple was then properly cleansed and rededicated, and the commemoration of that event came to be known as the Feast of Dedication, or Hanukkah, as it is called today. Now, this is important for us to note this morning because John is setting the stage for these comments from Jesus by calling attention to the time and the place of Jesus' words. It was the Feast of Dedication. 
Jesus was walking in the temple, specifically in the colonnade of Solomon, when he is surrounded by his antagonists. Now we need to allow this picture to develop a little more fully. For the people have gathered to remember this victory that was won over the Syrian king who defiled the temple in this most egregious way. And the last vestige of the first temple that Solomon built is where Jesus is standing. This is where Solomon more than likely stood when, following his prayer of dedication of the first temple, when he asked the question, will God indeed dwell upon the earth? He then pronounced a benediction upon the people of God. And now Jesus is standing in this same place. Jesus who is the affirmative answer to Solomon's question. Will God indeed dwell upon the earth? Yes. Jesus who in chapter 2 cleansed this temple of the commercialization that his antagonists had allowed to develop there, Jesus who then said to them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And he is surrounded by those who want to destroy him. They want to defile him. And they will do so later in a fashion no less offensive than that of Antiochus Epiphanes when they suspend him naked upon a cross and they mock him all the while he suffers for the sins of the elect and he prays for those who are tormenting him. How ironic that this true temple facing defilement at the hands of these who profess to be the guardians of God's law. The question that they pose to Jesus here is intended to entrap Him. They are not seeking clarification as to whether He is the Messiah so that they may worship Him. They do not believe that He is the Messiah. They are hoping that Jesus will say something that will become a chargeable offense so they may be rid of Him. And Jesus will not answer their question directly now because to do so would unleash their murderous mission and accelerate God's timetable. Jesus will answer their question directly when the Passover arrives in the spring, but for now, He simply indicates that they've not been paying attention because He's already provided them with all the evidence they need to come to the correct conclusion. The most recent miracle they witnessed was that of the man born blind who received his sight. And yet even though they had the testimony of this man who said that Jesus had made mud, put it on his eyes, instructed him to go to the pool of Siloam and wash it off, and he then returned seeing. Even though they had the testimony of the neighbors and those who had seen this man begging for years, as well as the testimony of the man's parents who said that, yes, this is our son, and yes, he was born blind, but we do not know how he now sees. Ask him. The Jewish authorities turned their own blind eye to all the evidence. And the reason that they were vexed over Jesus' identity was not due to Jesus being too secretive, but because they chose to disbelieve His claims and to harden their hearts towards Him. And in doing so, they demonstrated that they were not a part of Jesus' flock. 
And in this way, these authorities serve as universal examples of all those who fail to follow Christ and be saved. It's not because there is insufficient evidence to believe that Jesus is the Christ. It's not because there are an insufficient number of eyewitnesses to the events that we find in the Gospels. It is not because the written accounts of all these things are contradictory because they are not. The reason people do not follow Christ is not because Jesus was too secretive, because as we have already seen in God, in John's Gospel alone, Jesus made His identity clearly known to a variety of people, just not to those who were out to execute Him prematurely. The reason people do not follow Christ is because they choose not to bend the knee to His Lordship. Now, Jesus revisits what He said sometime earlier to the crowds when He declared that He was the Good Shepherd and the door through which people need enter the safety of God's sheepfold. And to all those who hear the Shepherd's voice and respond to His call, they will receive an eternal security that will never fail. It will not fail because it is not based upon our ability to hold on to Christ but it is based upon God's ability to hold on to us. And Jesus indicates here that His sheep are safely in His hand and no one can snatch them away. And then He reiterates it again, saying that they are held safely in the Father's hand. What provokes the ire in the heart of these Jews to the degree that they take up stones once again to kill Him, is when Jesus indicates that He and the Father are one. To their way of thinking, Jesus has violated the first commandment, You shall have no other gods before Me. So surrounded by rock-wielding Jews, Jesus asks a question that puts them on the defensive. I have a long list of accomplishments that are all signs to you, acts of true goodness that I have performed before your eyes. For which of these truly good works from the Father are you killing me? Now the authorities believe that this is an easy question. In fact, it is so easy that Jesus will not be able to rebut what they are about to say. We're not slaying you for doing good things. We're slaying you for blasphemy. God said that you should have no other gods before Him, and you are making yourself out to be a god. Now notice that they do not deny that Jesus has shown them many good works. We do not know all the good works that they have personally witnessed, but we know that Jesus healed the man who was lame for 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. He healed the man born blind, But we also know that when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the end of chapter 2, that many believed in His name when they saw the signs that He was doing then. So the authorities cannot take issue with the fact that Jesus has relieved the suffering of many people. But rather than conclude that His miraculous power has come from God, they attribute His power to Satan, because so many of these good works He did, He did on the Sabbath. But it turns out that Jesus does have a rebuttal to them. 
Actually, it turns out that God has a rebuttal because Jesus quotes Scripture to them. Jesus raises a question, quoting a portion of Psalm 82, which says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Now, that portion of Scripture is believed by most to be a reference to the judges whom Moses originally appointed to serve the Lord as a means of spreading the burden of settling disputes among the Israelites. Listen to what Moses said concerning them in the very beginning of their call to duty. And I charged your judges at that time, hear the cases between your brothers, and judge righteously between a man and his brother or the alien who is with him, You shall not be partial in judgment. You shall hear the small and the great alike. You shall not be intimidated by anyone, for the judgment is God's. And the case that is too hard for you, you shall bring to me, and I will hear it. And in other places throughout the Old Testament, people are instructed to bring their complaints to God, meaning to the appointed judge so that a godly decision can be rendered to settle the issue. And in Psalm 82, God is upset with the judges who are failing to render justice, but are showing partiality to the wicked. And so the Jews are upset with Jesus because they say, you being a man, make yourself to be God. And Jesus responds, is it not written in your law? I said, you're God's. Now, God was not saying that these judges were divine, but God who created these men and then called them to a divine service is demonstrating here that His referring to them as gods is totally permissible in this case because they are engaged in a most sacred duty. He was calling attention to their elevated responsibility to serve as His Word to His people. And so Jesus' argument runs like this. If God called them gods, to whom God's word came in order that they might render right judgments, and the Scripture records this, and we all agree that Scripture cannot be set aside just because it may be inconvenient at times, then on what grounds do you stand when you say to me, the one whom God consecrated and set aside for a very holy purpose, then sent into the world as the Father's representative. On what grounds do you stand when you charge me with blasphemy simply for declaring, I am God's Son? Now this rebuttal caused them to pause to the degree that Jesus then points them once again to all of His righteous works. Jesus has said all along that His works bear witness to His true identity. Jesus knows that the authorities know that it is illogical to believe that the magnitude of miraculous signs that He has produced find their origin in demonic activity. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? Someone asked at the end of chapter 9. Rhetorical question. Expected answer, no. And so Jesus says, if I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. Except everyone knows that healing a man born blind is not simply a good thing. It's a really, really good thing. It is a tremendously good thing. 
who other than God could conceive of such a good thing? Surely not a demon. But the Jewish authorities have deceived themselves into believing a patently false narrative that Jesus is possessed by a demonic power which gives Him these miraculous abilities. And Jesus goes on to say, but if I do them, in other words, the good works of the Father, while you may choose to disbelieve in me, at least receive the evidence of the good works and believe that I am possessed, not by a demon, but I am possessed by God the Father and that I reside in Him. Now it is this mutual Coinherence. It's the theological term. That the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Father that the Jews find unacceptable. And they are prepared to kill Jesus then in an act of what they believe to be justifiable homicide. They cannot conceive of this relationship that results in the incarnation. And yet this language is used also in terms of describing the relationship that we have with Christ. We are declared to be in Christ, while at the same time He is said to be in us. And for anyone who has been born from above, you understand that this is true by your experience, even though you might have difficulty in articulating how it is true. But it is right here at this point that Jesus withdraws from Jerusalem to return to where His ministry began. He retreats to the far shore, the eastern shore of the Jordan River where John baptized Him and where He was anointed by the Holy Spirit for the ministry that lay ahead. And this is where He will remain until He receives the 911 call from Mary and Martha to come and heal Lazarus. Jesus will not return to Jerusalem until the Passover that's coming in April. Now John does not record any further interaction with these Jewish authorities until the night of Jesus' arrest. And he appears before Annas and Caiaphas in chapter 18. But notice what John does tell us here. Even though Jesus was in this remote place, Many came to Him. Jesus' ministry, even though it was drawing to a close, even though He was situated in a remote place, He was still drawing people to Him because there has never been anyone like Jesus. And as the people said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. Which is why so many believed in Him there. Beloved, there is an abundance of evidence that points to Jesus as the Son of God. And there are many who will say that they have no trouble believing that Jesus was the Son of God. At the same time, many of those folks indicate that such an affirmation is no more significant than when they avow that Babe Ruth was the greatest baseball player Or they say that they believe George Washington was the first president of the United States. But the story that John is telling 
is not simply so people will avow that Jesus was the Son of God, but rather that by believing they may have life in His name. And that's a very different form of believing. It is a faith that causes you to stop following others and start following Jesus as your only shepherd. It means sacrificing all other things to Christ. It means being willing to suffer for the sake of His name, coming to the realization that His life and death and resurrection and ascension was so significant that apart from that, you are without hope, destined one day to stand before Him as the final judge with no defense. God's displeasure with the judges in Psalm 82 was that they ignored the evidence that was being presented to them and they were not executing justice in God's name. And even though God had favored them with all the spiritual gifts they needed to render right judgments, they allowed their weak human natures to favor the wicked in disputes. God called them God's Son of the Most High. But then he says of them, nevertheless, like men you shall die and fall like any prince. And that is to say that their favored status among men would not end well for them when they finally stood before the king of all kings when he sits upon his judgment seat. The Jewish authorities before whom Jesus performed Such wondrous signs were also incapable of weighing the evidence and arriving at a right verdict. They will, in the chapters yet to come, find the innocent Son of God guilty and they will execute Him all in an effort to hold on to their power and their status. But you see, every person is called upon to weigh the evidence and come to a verdict about Jesus. Will you find Him to be the incarnate Son of God who died in your place to save you from your sin? And will you repent and believe in Him in order that you might have eternal life? Or will you find the evidence to be lacking and simply ignore it and rest instead upon your own achievements when you too one day we'll have to stand before the judge. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me for a moment that we might pray together.